Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to episode 15 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Renee Smith on the show. Renee previously served as the Director of Workplace Transformation for Washington State as part of the Governor's Results Washington team. Renee has championed a more humane and effective workplace. Renee is a researcher, writer, and speaker globally on the topic of making work more humane by increasing love and decreasing fear in the workplace. Let's get into the episode. Renee, thank you for joining us on the podcast to share your knowledge and help us create a better future. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Brad. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Renee, what, I'm keen to start with your backstory. Look, what are some key elements in your life that really started to form who you've become in this field of enterprise excellence and transformation and humanistic approaches? Yeah. You know, um, I grew up here in the Puget Sound area in the state of Washington and the other Washington, as we like to say, um, and had a, had a happy childhood and um, went off to college and then kind of lost my way, actually. So, um, you know, some of the, the, the personal things that happened early on really um, feed into and shape uh, who I am today and how I kind of carry this work. And in that, you know, losing my way, um, dropping out of school, ending up getting married, having a couple kids, moving to Alaska. Um, uh, and through that time, um, you know, kind of dropping, um, dropping the pursuit of the things that I loved and, and following after you know, my husband's interests. Um, but there was a, an accident. He was in an accident in a plane crash um, when I was 27, he was 31, and we had these two little boys and really life was never the same again. Um, and that kind of thrust us into eight years of, um, and thrust me into eight years of caregiving and, um, you know, trying to make kind of the best of things, really, um, trying to cope with this kind of set of cards that had been dealt and, um, you know, keep my commitments and honor those promises and um, carry on with life as best I could. And, um, and eventually, you know, we had a couple more kids and, um, eventually, though, I realized that after eight years that um, I just felt kind of released from the situation. It was a very difficult situation and felt released. And um, then it was time to get my life back, right, and to discover, um, reclaim my path, find my voice again, and discover what I was going to do with my life. So went back to school um, and to, you know, got, finished my undergrad and then uh, went to graduate school and kind of found my people, found my calling and organization development. Um, and so, you know, that, that early, um, early as a young, you know, a young adult having such a, um, such a huge challenge, um, I, I think it cultivated something in me that, um, that could face hard moments, you know, that knew that I could do hard things, that I could persevere through. I used to have the saying that I could do anything for two years, you know, that was this two-year cycle of trying to get through, get through school, you know, with all the kids and all, all the, all the crazy chaos and everything, um, persevering through that um, to get to something better. And, um, you know, did a few cycles of that. And, um, and eventually, I mean, it was, in a sense, it was kind of like PDCAing my way into a new life, if you will, right? Um, 
and but eventually found my way into um, work in um, did consulting work and then um, did work in uh, uh, the at the University of Washington uh, Tacoma campus in organization development, which is where I encountered Lean and, and really learned about Lean and continuous improvement, um, doing that work on a campus and developing a program for um, the campus. Um, and so then that, that really took me um, into state government. Eventually I um, was uh, offered a position in an agency just when our state um, was really embarking on its Lean transformation journey. Uh, back in 2011-12 in that era um, is when that happened. So those were wow. a few like early experiences that were difficult, right, but that um, planted some seeds that would become important later. Yeah, Renee, that, that's a really tough early backstory that you spoke about. Like I'm, I can understand you would have gone through a lot of hardship there. But what, yeah. And so you, it really taught you some resilience and, mm-hmm. and strength to persevere. Yes, for sure. Yeah, it, to persevere. I mean, it, it also cultivated like deep empathy in me, deep compassion for people and the, like a sensing about um, what people are facing. Um, and, 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 you know, many people, I mean, eventually, really, we all go through something. We all go through things. Now we're all sort of collectively going through a massive thing for sure. Um, and individually, though, we, you know, we face those moments of personal crisis and um, so I have a lot of compassion for people who are facing those situations and um, I don't know, the ability to tap in, I think, to where people are on a human level um, that, that just come, that just came from, you know, facing my own, my own difficulties. Um, and that's, that's played into certainly into what I do today. And yeah, that's, that's amazing. I can really see the path there of that, the challenges you had early in your life. And I guess you had the experience of those playing out with the workplace too and how you then managed your way through university and your career. And is that what led you partly down this path of knowing that, right, humans are humans and there's this humanistic element that comes to work? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know that I ever, I personally ever didn't think humans were humans, right? And, and I think I've always sort of brought that, but then, you know, we get introduced and, and I think I've maintained that all along the way. It certainly was the way that I have led over the years when I've, um, you know, managed and led teams um, and, you know, been in executive and organizations. Um, so that's, that's been a sensibility that I've always carried, but I've certainly witnessed that um, other people have it scared out of them, um, beaten out of them, you know, uh, threatened out of them. Um, or, you know, for whatever, like it, 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 go, it has been um, taken out of or removed or that option taken off the table for so many people. Um, sometimes from before they have, you know, they get anywhere near a workplace, some of it originates from the time people are little tiny, tiny humans, you know, um, that people learn to not be fully human. They not learn to not have emotions, to not have, to not be sensing, you know, in their body, to leave their intuition behind, to deny different parts of themselves. Um, and so, yeah, watching the fallout of that and people struggle with that is something that I've been aware of, um, but thankfully have um, stayed pretty connected myself um, through it all. So, Renee, I know you've had a long career in the public sector and that evolved into this space you're, you're in now around, you know, a humane approach to the workplace, increasing love, decreasing fear. How did that evolve through your time with Washington State? Yeah, so... 
You know, we, um, I was leading lean transformation services inside a state agency um, at the Department of Inter Enterprise Services for the state of Washington. And um, so my job was to help cultivate this lean culture and the entire state was um, embarking at that point on, on embracing lean as a operating system, as a culture and way of working. Um, and you know, I had a lot of great leadership support, um, and uh, we were we were really going after it and, and getting you know getting some great results and um, you know changing the way people were experiencing their work and the way that they were delivering services. Um, and then just in the course of doing that, we were actually so we were getting ready um, to present at a lean conference. We had some teams that were presenting at this huge lean conference that we put on as a state, a couple thousand people over a couple days. And um, our team was, teams were preparing and I was having a conversation with our executive director, like the leader of our agency, Chris Liu. And um, Chris was a really seasoned leader. Um, Chris had been in private sector for many years. He'd actually like had training at Toyota way back in the day, you know, so he, he had a, a deep understanding of this and his own style and experiences too. And uh, he and I were talking about leadership and about what it took, like the culture that it took to create the a kind of environment, the kind of um, the kind of results, you know, that these teams were getting. Like, what did it, what did what did it take? What were we putting in place? And so, I, in the course of this conversation, I eventually asked him. So, okay, Chris, like, let's get real. Tell me, what do you think is the most important job of a leader? And I will never forget what he said. He immediately answered to eliminate fear from the workplace. And and it, like, it's beautiful when you hear your executive say something like that, right? Um, it was music to my ears and, and I um, resonated with it as something that I had seen him try to do and, um, you know, encourage us as his executive team to lead that way. And it made sense that like good things had happened when we'd done that and not such good things when we'd missed it. Um, and it, um, so it resonated, but it also only seemed like half the story. So it seemed like, okay, we're gonna decrease fear, get that, that makes sense, but what takes its place? And after a lot of consideration, I came to the conclusion that it's love. That like, forget about all of our opinions about whether, what we think about whether love is something at work or not. Just you know, from a human perspective, fear and love, two primary human experiences. All of the negative stems from fear, all of the positive stems from love. And so if that's true then, you know, and I came to really believe that it is, then the question is, what, is, what do those things look like at work? What, how do those manifest at work? What are the impacts of those at work? And if we are decreasing fear to, you know, create a space where um, people will speak up, answer questions, you know, offer ideas, you know, do PDCA um, and, and, you know, the, the Cotter routine and all the different, you know, applying all the tools and techniques and mental models and all the good things that we, you know, that we love and trying to create a more improved workplace um, and results for customers. Um, then, you know, it's not only the, the, the decreasing fear, but it's creating an environment that really embraces that. Um, and I came to believe that that was true. It, it made, um, it's came to, I came to realize that that really, expressed when we were at our best that expressed what was happening um, and so that became like the catalyst um, for uh, me understanding um, what we were doing and how to sort of um, oh what would I say how to what what we should be aiming for and cultivating um, when we're trying to create organizations that do good in the world. Renata that, that was very impressive thank you for that story 
I, yeah, I gained myself a lot from just listening to what you just said just mm-hmm. then. Cool. But it really sounded to me like there's this, there's all these tools and techniques and there's all these approaches we can apply to work to try and make it better. But then at the heart of it, if you've got fear and you don't have love and care for employees, it's not going to work. Is that what you found? Is that, is that what you're saying? Or am I Absolutely. No, you're, you're totally on track. And, you know, if you think about it, um, so, you know, respect for people um, is sort of the lean, the, the, the lean jargon that we would use that, that that's the sort of this, um, and it is true. It's a, that's a, the, a core way, a core tenant of a lean culture. Um, and we often use that language. And I love um, John Miller's translation of the Japanese character of, or the characters that are respect for people. Um, and, you know, he went back and looked at that and researched that and, and um, translated that as holding precious what it is to be human. Right. Isn't that beautiful? That's nice. That's lovely. Holding precious what it is to be human. So, you know, really what that says to me is that if, I mean, it, it asks some things of us, right? If, if we're going to have this respect for people in this culture that we're trying to build, then that means that I need to hold precious the humanity of my team members, right? That's, that's, that's underneath all of the, anything else that we would do is holding precious, deeply caring for the humanity of my team members. And it means that I'm going to hold precious the humanity of my customers and, you know, deeply caring for them as human beings. And if like, if we hold that up, if we hold that mental model, then that asks some things of us, right? That then motivates why we would use any of the improvement techniques that, that we believe in in the first place. Um, I, I think it's useful to think about, um, the you know sort of what we think lean is um what how we would define lean and i've come to believe that you know what and i actually love to ask people this so maybe we could like we'll do a little thought experiment right so if our listeners were to um you know to just jot for a moment um you know make a note on, on a piece of paper like when if you're at a barbecue um or, and if you're you're in australia so i'd say this is a if we, you were throwing some shrimp on the barbie right yes, definitely. <laughs> um if you were doing that and you know with friends and whatever um in the pre-covid day maybe we've got our masks on masks on we're six feet apart and and but we're in this social situation and somebody says well here you do that lean thing what is lean right what is lean so what would you say you know, and if, if listeners like were to make some notes about that, they might write, you know, well, lean's about eliminating waste, right? Or it's about um, respect for people, or it's about um, continuous process improvement, or, you know, or, 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 right, all of the things. And what I would offer is that those are all true, but, um, you know, if like our language matters, our verbs matter, and that those are kind of like um, scattered ar- along an array of, of the definition that I would offer, which is that lean is a human-centered philosophy of work or a human-centered approach to work. Like at, at its highest level, that's what it is. And, and so if we hold that, lean is this human-centered approach. And that approach creates a culture that has certain principles and values. And it, it uses certain methods and tools, right? And it results in certain things. It results in you know, continuous improvement and delivering better value to customer and flow and so on. And if you were to look at, you know, if you were to ask 10 people to answer that, what is lean question? And you know, give all those answers. The, the, the stickies that they would put those on could be arrayed between our, you know, the cultural principles and values, the methods and tools, and the results, right? 
And, and it's important, I think, to get that, like to get that clear, to keep that straight. But that over all of that is this idea that lean is a human-centered philosophy of work. It really sounds to me, Renee, like you're describing that is the enabler, that is the foundation of everything else working. Yeah. In a sense, it's like, it's our why, right? It's, it's the center of our golden circle. It's our why mm-hmm. in Simon Sinek's um, terms. So, yeah. yeah. Renee, within the public sector, so you, you had Chris, you're working with and other executive people. Mm-hmm. What are some stories in some ways that you went about removing fear from Washington state and bringing more love into what you did there? Some case examples. Mm-hmm. Oh goodness. Let's see. So, um, you know, I think about one leader, um, yeah, there's several that come to mind. So, um, one leader, um, who's not at DES anymore, not at the same agency anymore, but Jeff Kanan, um, was a leader that came in as, um, the, a new director over a particular, uh, associate director, whatever, over a particular area that had really struggled. Um, and, and the agency that he was coming into had been, a um, we had been a merger of five different agencies into one new agency. And this was a part of the agency that sort of, um, you know, was coming along a little bit later in their, in their um, transformation into, you know, their like get, coming along with that program, if you will. It's a hard, it can be a hard transition to go from being their own thing until this new thing. And so he was coming in as a leader to help them along with that. And, you know, he, like, there, there was the usual kinds of, um, you know, difficulties, human difficulties that people were having in um, adopting a new way of working and becoming one team in tending to the customer in some new ways that they hadn't before um, and all the things that are necessary really to make improvements to the process so that people, um, you know, will use the products and services that we offered. And, and, and I should say that this agency was unique in that it was a fee-for-service model. So we really did um, operate in an entrepreneurial business, like we did business um, government as business kind of fashion, if you will. So um, he came in and, and um, really cultivated um, deep caring relationships with his team um, and helped, you know, created a, um, a real sense of safety um, and, um, you know, built, built a culture where people um, really went after trying to deeply understand what customers needed, what they needed to be satisfied. Um, and out of that understanding what they needed to be satisfied, um, designed products and services to those needs and measured their performance against those expectations um, and did, you know, turned that business unit around um, and did really incredible work there, um, which I, you know, I think the, his example is the epitome of what like really caring lean leadership looks like. I didn't know, you know, I don't know if he would have um, put that term on and at the end, but he did epitomize or in the beginning, but he did epitomize that in that, in that way. Um, I, I think another leader that I think of that was a great example of, um, you know, um, respect for people and of, um, of living, like putting love in action um, is a leader that we worked with. My team um, worked with Rick Garza at the, uh, what was, at first it was the Liquor Control Board and then it became the Liquor and Cannabis Board after we um, legalized marijuana. Um, And he had a leader on his team um, who made a really public mistake, right? And, um, you know, if you think about 
what like to contrast what fear in action would look like with that really public mistake um you know you can imagine it's like throw them under the bus or you know make kind of hang them out to dry public shaming um you know reading them the right act or maybe they lose their job you know um, or they're just like marginalized and you know and and they're still there they get to still be there but they don't really you know they're persona non grata um but instead, Rick reached out to this person and let them know that, um, that he was there for them and that they were family and that they weren't alone and coached and mentored that person through the correcting of the mistake. And, and that person went on to continue to have a really successful leadership career with that organization, which, you know, um, is an, sort of an example, you know, that they were, they were doing improvement work was part of what they were doing, um, part of the, the backdrop of this team. Uh, but they could have lost that leader just, you know, in the sense of like being inhumane in the way that they were and the way that he handled this circumstance with her. Um, so that's a couple examples. Yeah, and um, what I'm, it really sounds to me like the leadership is at the heart of it, whether we have fear or love. And then I've also heard that it sounds like there's some pivotal moments yeah, that yeah, can really that, play a big part, whether our culture goes forward with fear or goes forward with love. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we, you know, we face all kinds of moments that I would call the moments that matter all the time. You know um, those are, there are moments when, um, you know, we've declared some things, maybe we've said, we're this kind of place. We want you to behave in these certain ways. We want you to point out the problem or speak up or offer your idea or, you know, do um, rounds of testing to show if your idea works or not, you know, and all the things that we do. Um, and, you know, or, you know, we've, we've, um, done improvement cycles and now there's this change that's needed and it, it has implications for people. And so we've got to come to terms with all that. And all of those experiences are, are human moments, right? And if we handle those human moments in ways that are um, callous or, or, you know, if we say, hey, we're all about people, but then in the moment when it really matters, um, I can't look you in the eye or, you know, I'm dismissive of your idea or we, you know, blaze right through something or, uh, or, you know, all that's going fine, but you have a personal crisis and, you know, I can't sit with you for 10 minutes and let you just talk about what's going on, you know, with your sick parent or your, you know, your dying kid or, you know, whatever the situation is, people face things all the time. And if we are not there for each other in ways that really count, that show that we, you know, we care for each other's humanity, then whatever we've declared is null and void, you know, um, whatever, and whatever trust that that would have engendered will be lost. And, you know, now, am I going to speak up next time? Probably not. Am I going to go the extra mile? Probably not. Um, so, and, and right. you know, how that would play out. Yeah. I love that, Renee, moments that matter. How do, how do leaders, what do you coach a leader or talk to a leader about in relation to how to identify moments that matter and then how to deal with moments that matter? Is there some mm. techniques that you typically talk about? So I think a couple of things are necessary um, to that. One is that, you know, leaders have to be doing their own work on themselves. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's not only am I going to create a, a space where people can bring their whole selves, but I need to be working on being a fully integrated present human. So not just my intellect, um, I need to be tuned into my own emotions, to my own physical body, to my intuition, my relationships, my, you know, all my identities. I'm bringing my whole self and inviting you to bring your whole self. Um, 
you know, I think leaders get into a lot of jeopardy when, um, you know, someone is coming to them um, with a, um, you know, as with a need. And, and if we're just trying to um, meet that need only with our intellect and not with our full humanity, then we're in peril there that that often will not go well. So we've got to be you know, more integrated and fully present with people. Um, one of the things that I also encouraged, um, a tool that I introduced is a, like a simple um, kind of compare and contrast tool. So it, you know, in any given challenge that we have as leaders or team members too, um, this could apply to anyone, um, there's always a choice about how we live into that challenge. So, um, um, you know, it, let's say, uh, let's say there's going to be um, some change in composition to the team. We're getting new team members that are coming on board. Well, we can handle that change in a way that creates fear for the team, or we can handle, manage, lead into that change in a way that creates essentially um, a sense of love, safety, connectedness, compassion, kindness, respect, trust, right? Um, and so there are two very different sets of behaviors. And so the exercise is identify the challenge. So the, you know, the team composition is changing. Who's impacted by the challenge? Get clear on that, who all the people are. And then part one, think through, what, what can I do to create fear? What's my plan for fear? And we know, right? We know if we, sometimes we get to pause and like slow down a little bit to think about it, but we know the things like poor communication, like surprising people, not explaining what's you know, happening, um, not providing people the resources they need and not giving them time to get to know each other. We can, you know, we can make that list of, of what would create fear in that scenario. So we've got that list now. Now turn to the other side of the sheet of paper, if you will. And what would be the plan to create a sense of love, safety, connectedness, respect, trust, and so on. Um, and we make that list, make that plan. Um, and if we, you know, that's sort of using our own in, intuition, our own insights, our own human experience, but it also could be sitting down with your team and saying, listen, we've got this change coming. Um, like, um, tell me what's going to help you to feel safe, cared about, loved, if you're using that word, or other versions of it, respected, trusted, and so on. What would help you to, you know, for this to be a, a good experience? Let, you know, let me know. And what would make it go sideways? What, would, what, what could I do here that would make you afraid, that would make you feel disconnected, that would make you feel marginalized or uncertain or overwhelmed? Um, and just ask them directly, get that feedback. And now we, now we know, don't do these things, right? Don't do the first set of things and do the second set of things. What an impressive, you know, engagement, empowerment, and collaboration approach. That's really powerful. Thank you. There's a lot of there's a lot of application to that too, right? I mean, you can almost anything that we're doing, even in strategic planning, could be in the um, the uh, implementation of of you know an improvement that we're making. We pause. That's like a, a lens that we could apply to anything. Pause and consider how do we move this forward now? We know it's a good new way to work. How do we move forward with this now in a way that does not create fear and that does create love? Thank you. Renee, what do you believe stops leaders pausing and doing that? What have you seen that impacts? Yeah, well, certainly, and, and we see this a, a lot right now, just, just the overwhelm um, of just trying to, you know, get through the day, survive, the, the amount of pressure that are, that's on people, generally speaking, it was bad before, right? The sense of um, time pressure, um, too many things to pay attention to, um, you know, all of all of that overwhelm was true before, and it is is even more so now. And 
is even more difficult now just because of, in many cases, the physical distance that, that people have, the remoteness from each other. Um, but I also think there's something about like just not being clear on, you know, how people are experiencing, you know, the environmental conditions. I think if, if you know, for most, most leaders really care. Most leaders want to be good leaders. Most leaders, you know, want people to feel connected and um, safe and, you know, and, and, and I don't mean not uncomfortable, you know, there's a, definitely, I should be clear, there's a place for discomfort um, that has nothing to do with toxic fear. So most, most leaders, you know, want to do well and do good too. Um, but they often are um, like distant from the experience of their team members um, and don't realize, you know, that this little behavior or this omission of doing something is freaking people out, you know. Um, and so, it, you know, I think tuning in, plugging in, either asking or getting, you know, getting good advice or just, just plugging into their own experience, remembering their own experience um, can help to cultivate that empathy and, and wiser actions in those terms. I love that term that you, you used around their own experience because invariably a leader has been in his team member's shoes at some stage, typically he or her has been in that role. Right, exactly. Well, I, I have found that, um, you know, my, my work is based on research that I did. I, I you know, interviewed people. I've um, done primary research interviews, asking people their stories about times when they felt afraid at work, and times when they felt loved at work, and, you know, collected those stories, analyzed them for themes and content, and came away really clear about how damaging fear is and how beneficial love is and all of the forms that we all want at work. Not, you know, not not romantic, you know, love, of course, but I know all of the forms that do belong, that respect, trust, kindness, empathy, inclusion, and so on. Um, and when we, like, it's the, it's the tapping into our stories that, that connects for people. It's, um, you know, when I share stories, people recall their own stories, and there's an identification there that sort of um, de-escalates all the protests that people might have about the L word, you know. So, Renee, on that tapping into your stories, are you um, implying there too that piece of vulnerability, being open to share your stories and, and connect in that regard too? In terms of leaders? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Definitely. I think, you know, I think Brene Brown has, um, has schooled us all so beautifully, you know, um, and normalize it. Yeah, she is. And, and has normalized this idea of, you know, how critical it is to be vulnerable um, and, and, you know, to be real with each other. And that, and I think too, you know, the, the, the work of Edgar Schein, um, humble inquiry, right. Um, his, his work and with his son, Peter, you know, they've, they've done beautiful work on, um, helping to understand how, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to create, um, you know, that sense of psychological safety, that's so critical, um, that, you know, it means that those of us who are in positions of power need to, sort of not be elevated, we need to reach out and, and make human connections um, with people, you know, who we want to work with and who we need to have us tell us things. And, and it's those human connections happen through vulnerability, through humility, um, through, you know, person to person contact. So, you know, the, I like, I think it's good news. Like, you know, the, this old school way of being, you know, that, that so many people came up through the ranks with, that was like, check your humanity at the door in order to be professional is like, like those days are over. Those days are over. And that should be good news. We don't have to, you know, 
we don't have to check our humanity at the door. We get to be fully ourselves um, and still be professional. And gosh, if any time has convinced us of that, or like we've seen evidence of that, it's now, right? Um, you know, our, our work life, our home life has merged. We get to see people's cats and arch and their, you know, their, hear their, this, their children, you know, come in and sit on their laps. And suddenly we are more human than ever. And I, I actually think that that's a massive benefit to what we've all been subjected to in these last many months. Renee, I totally agree with you. I've been able to introduce my two-year-old daughter and my 10-year-old son to more people than I could have ever introduced them to in the past. It's, it's been wonderful. I meet so many other children and cats and dogs, and it's been beautiful. Yeah, I- it is. It's fantastic. And, and even, you know, and sometimes when I'm facilitating, we'll have people, you know, go get an item that will represent something and, you know, to have access to your life, right? It's all right there. Um, it's really quite meaningful. Yeah, you so. can connect at a whole new level in some regards, even though we're virtual. Mm-hmm, exactly. Renee, I know you've done a lot of work in the public sector and now you're out running your own business and mm-hmm. working with public and private. Are you finding any difference between the two? Um, so, you know, there's, there's uh, at some, in some, you know, ways that are really not material to what I'm talking about. Right. Because at the end of the day on the human level, no, I mean, um, you know, how, how the, how things uh, move sometimes in an organization or how fast or any of that might be different perhaps, but, um, when it comes to the kinds of culture necessary to do whatever our charge is, the kinds of work environments that people want to be in and, you know, day to day where, you know, how we want to spend our time or, um, you know, give our life energy, um, whatever, whatever our purpose is, um, whatever, you know, kind of whatever our funding stream comes from, whether it comes from tax dollars or sales revenue, that, you know, that's kind of immaterial to, um, human beings on a team collaborating, trying to bring value to those that they serve in some way. And that, be, that essentially gets back to, um, you know, can we make work more human? Can we, can we be together? Can we, um, yeah, it, it, it wants us, no matter, you know, what the scenario we want um, to, we want a more human workplace, you know, in a more human way of working in order to do that. So I, I haven't seen much difference in that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Renee. Yeah. Renee, where, where are you going now? What's your focus for the future? You're at this transition stage where you're out in your own practice now. What, yeah. What's your focus now moving forward? So like before I talk about moving forward, a little bit of help, a um, little bit to look back. So, you know, I, um, I decided on December in December that it was time for me to um, go in the spring into private practice. And so I gave notice in December and um, decided that March 2nd would be my last day and uh, chose that for various reasons and had, you know, thinking that I um, had these hosts ready, all, people ready to be trained as human workplace hosts all over the world to host gatherings where that would be kind of the catalyst for helping people to discover and practice how to be human at work in localities, right? And then, um, of course, um, March 3rd, I'm like in my at home getting ready to, you know, roll all this out. And by March 6th, it was very apparent because I'm here in the you know, in Seattle area and, you know, it was very apparent soon that that wasn't going to happen. And, and you know, that we've all talked about the pivot 
um, what I was fortunate enough to be able to do was like, I hadn't built the next things yet. So the pivot was very natural. It wasn't, okay, I'm not going to build it this way. I'm going to build it this other way. But the, the purpose is still the same. The purpose is still to help people discover and practice how to be human at work. And so now we'll do it in a virtual setting. And we rapidly prototyped um, uh, working alone together gathering, a virtual gathering that was really about helping people cope with what they were experiencing in the pandemic. And um, a few colleagues um, helped me roll that out um, from, you know, who are also in private practice, Angie Burwell-Kerr and um, Shannon Patterson and um, Greg Flynn um, and each in their own practices. And they came together with me and we did some um, initial outreach. And within a few weeks we had, you know, dozens of people in gatherings um, and people saying, we want to do this too. And so within like two months, I had, I think at that point, I had 15 or 18 hosts that had raised their hands, people that had said, we want to affiliate and be hosts. And so um, within a couple months, we trained all these new hosts. Now we have, I think, 28 um, who are trained and we've held dozens and dozens of gatherings for folks all over the world and um, reaching into organizations. And so that's all, that's all up and running. And um, we have, you know, people who are reaching out to, um, to offer that very particular intervention into, um, to help organizations right now cope with this moment that they're in. Um, and, you know, and it's like not a, it's not a one thing either. It, it's sort of adapted to what is the next thing we're experiencing and how do we help people essentially connect um, to de-escalate their fear and stress response so that they can come back into themselves and contribute. I mean, we can't, we can't let people remain at this really heightened state of threat and fear. That, you know, we're all running around in a massive fight or flight um, you know, response. And so this is, it's a, it's a method to help people de-escalate that and come into better connection and better contribution. Um, the next phase of what we're in um, coming into is we have a couple things happening. Um, I'm um, reaching out again and beginning to speak and teach in the fall um, and working in organizations um, more. So there's been a lot of cultivation this last spring of this team. Um, so I'll be doing a lot more advocacy and uh, speaking and declaring the, the good news, if you will, about uh, more love and less fear um, and helping people understand how essential that is right now and as, as ever it is. Um, and then our team is ready to, they're forming pods to rapidly um, prototype and kind of sense needs, prototype solutions and take them to market or take them to customers rapidly and forming kind of cross, um, cross industry, cross uh, disciplinary teams um, to bring essentially people who will come together to work in a way that is loving in order to bring more loving solutions into the world is our, is our charge. So that's what, what, that's what's next for us. Well, that's been a rapid journey. Yes, it has. <laughs> Nothing like doing like two years of business development in three months or whatever. <laughs> it sounds like a very impressive model. How, how can people get involved if they want to either to join a group and get involved and partake or, you know, potentially reach out as a facilitator? Yeah, for sure. So um, I can be reached at Renee at makeworkmorehuman.com. And then our website, um, you know, it can be reached a couple ways at ahumanworkplace.com or makeworkmorehuman.com. And there's sign-up forms on there and, you know, all the usual things to connect with us. And I'm happy to speak with anyone either about, um, you know, if they need help in their organization or 
um, speaking or um, if they're interested in joining our effort. That's a multidisciplinary growing team that wants to do um, bring more love in the world in all sorts of different ways. It's needed right now. And I'll put those addresses in the show notes also. Yeah. Renee, I've got one final question for you. What have you learned recently that you didn't know before? Hmm. Such a good question. Um, you know, um, I, so I think when the thing that's striking me right now as I look out my window, um, so I just moved last Wednesday. Um, and I, I've learned personally the power of setting intention and um, like staying in harmony with what you're supposed to do personally. Um, um, I, again, back to December, I had a strong urge that um, I wanted to sell my house and move somewhere beautiful, live somewhere um, where I could look out at nature instead of, I love I being in town, but I was ready to look at nature and I really wanted to be by the water. And uh, so through a series of unexpected events, I, I did sell my house, sold my house in the midst of the pandemic and my uh, um, closed Friday and I moved last week and I am steps from the water and surrounded by trees. And actually just before we came on um, to record, I bought a kayak. So um, I'm, I'm living in a real space of joy, but you know, that came from being clear, like listening to that deep inner voice, responding to that, setting a clear intention, taking action. And um, I've proven to myself again, just how important that is. So. Well, really, really taking that time again yourself to reflect and think and plan and go what's really important. Yes. Yes. And you know, when we do that, right, this, this is the space where I'm going to bring my best work into the world. Um, and so, you know, we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to do that and taking the step from, this is what that step looked like for me. Um, is to find a place well, I, where I will be nurtured in a sense every day. Um, and, you know, that means different things to different people. So getting clear on that and then honoring that as best we can. Um, certainly, I mean, I'm, I should say that I want to acknowledge that I'm privileged to be able to do that, right? I'm privileged that I had a house to sell um, and that I could, you know, make certain choices. Um, and, um, but, you know, whatever, for whatever, whatever way we can do that, of listening to what your heart is longing for and going after that, um, will set us up to be able to be more present and bring the wisdom and goodness that we have to bring into the world. So the world needs it now. Right? Yeah. I know that you're really passionate and uh, about the environment. And I believe that, you know, if we're going to solve those tough problems, um, we've got to, we've got to be ready to, to be there with the best that we have. So. And to do that, like you've said throughout this episode, we've got to be present and we've got to immerse ourselves in that. Yes. Renee, thank you so much for your knowledge and wisdom today. I've gained an awful lot and I'm sure our listeners will. And good luck with everything you're doing into the future to help create more humane workplaces and drive out fear and bring in love. I, I think it's an amazing cause. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Brad. I appreciate it. What an amazing episode with Ms. Renee Smith. I found it really impressive focusing on this topic of developing more humane and effective workplaces. I think that's something we can all strive to achieve. The two key takeaways for me were drive out fear and fill the gap with love and focusing on moments that count. You know, fear in a workplace can cause so many negative aspects. Things getting hidden, not focused on, not talking about challenges or being fearful of consequences. Being able to get rid of fear and fill it with love 
and support and development for people to help people grow and develop is truly going to create a better workplace wherever you are. The Moments That Count was such an amazing concept that Renee covered that allows us to really look at look for those moments and then choose a different path. To me, this comes back to the natural human capability we've got of choosing that gap between a trigger and response. You know, when we see something or something is raised as a leader or human in general, we can often get an initial reaction and respond rapidly. But it's the gap between those two, that phase of reason, that we can then use to think about this moment that counts and how should I approach that to create a more humane workplace with less fear and more love where people are engaged, it's safe to fail as long as we learn from failure and we get a culture of continuous improvement and excellence. Thanks again, Renee. That was an amazing show. Really appreciate it.